get your Bible open to the book of Acts chapter 2. I'll meet you there in just a moment. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the first time you ever went to church and heard someone preach a message from the Bible? And just think about that. Now, some of you would say, listen, I went to church nine months before I was born. I didn't have a choice. I heard a lot of different sermons. I can't remember the first one. How many of you would be in that category? Raise your hand. Yeah, I've heard a lot of sermons, right? And uh, others of you, maybe you're like, maybe this could be that experience for you. This might be the first sermon you've ever heard from the Bible in the church, and there could be people here today like that. Some of you um, can remember maybe it was maybe 15 years ago. Some of you would say, I heard a lot of sermons, but there was one particular time I heard a sermon, and my life has never been the same. Anybody want to confess to that? Say, man, I, God used the preaching of God's word to turn my life around. How many of you would make a statement like that? And hopefully that's going to happen here today. This is what I want to challenge you to do. I want you to pretend that this is the first sermon you've ever heard preached. Okay? Now, not just pretend that you've heard it, I want you to respond to the sermon like it's the first sermon that you've ever heard preached. Do you know why I'm challenging you to do that? Because I am going to preach the first Christian sermon that was ever preached from Acts chapter two. The preacher's name was Peter, and he's going to preach from three different passages in the Old Testament, okay? So if I do my job right, you're going to hear two sermons here today. You're going to hear my sermon laid on top of Peter's sermon, and if I do my job right, I won't mess up either one. Okay, so will you pray for me as we get into it here this morning? We, I'm going to give you the, the big idea of the whole message here today. Here it is. If you don't hear anything else I say, here it is. Biblical preaching produces biblical salvation, producing biblical churches. Today, we're going to see the components of biblical preaching, the components of biblical salvation, and the components of biblical churches. How many of you are aware right now there is a microchip shortage going on in the world? Are you, are you aware of this? Um, automakers are having trouble producing automobiles. They can produce things that look like automobiles. They have tires and engines and interiors, but without these tiny little microchips, the thing won't run. The same thing is true of biblical preaching, biblical salvation, and biblical churches. If you leave out the essential components, it doesn't work right. And the problem is, there's way too much preaching that leaves out essential components. There's way too many claims of having salvation that leaves out essential components. There's way too many churches that are leaving out essential components. So we're going to see all of those here from Acts chapter 2 here this morning. Here's the first point of the message. Let's first of all look at the components of biblical preaching. There are five of them that we can see here in the text. Let's begin reading in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, the 11 other disciples, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk 
as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, I hope you were here last week and you understand the context of what's going on. Do you remember last week, uh, the Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost and there are some strange things happening in the room. There are men speaking other languages. There are tongues of fire. This is a sight and sound event for the ages to come. There was a stirring in the community. Everybody was coming to see these strange events. And some of the men said, these guys must be drunk. My favorite statement from Micah's sermon last week, do you remember what he said? He said, being drunk does not help you speak languages that you do not know. It makes you speak the language that you do know worse. I thought that was awesome. That was great. Like these men should have known, like getting drunk does not help you speak other languages. So that's not what's going on. So what is going on? If they're not under the influence of alcohol, what are they under the influence of? And the answer is what? The spirit of the living God has come in a once for all, never to be repeated, baptism of the Holy Spirit where we receive as the church the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has come and now he has sent the Holy Spirit and there's incredible things happening. And that is the first component of biblical preaching. Do you know what it is? It is spirit empowerment. Biblical preaching is spirit empowered. I gotta let you know, I mean, you kind of see me, you've seen me for years. Do you walk up those steps? Do you know what's happening when I'm walking up those steps? I'm praying this prayer. Lord, empty me of my flesh and fill me with your spirit because the best of my ability to articulate is not going to produce anything eternal, anything of spiritual significance. And so, Lord, I need you to empower the preaching of God's word. And that was what was happening here in this text. And then secondly, we wanna see that biblical preaching not only is spirit powered, but it is Bible driven. As a good preacher, do you know what the apostle Peter does next? He says, open your Bible. Now, they didn't have printed copies of God's word like you have here. They didn't have digital devices to carry it on around, but they had it stored in their head. And so look at what he says in verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in their minds, they went back to the Old Testament prophet Joel. And in Joel chapter two, Peter now reads the text or he quotes the text that he's gonna be preaching from. Verse 17 says, in the last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour my spirit out and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and vapor. It gets a little spooky there. And smoke, verse 20, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of what's going on right there, but let me just say this. In the Old Testament, the only ones who were ever empowered or filled with the Spirit were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And Joel is prophesying a day in the future when ordinary common men and women, old men and young men, old women and young women, 
universally will be filled with the Spirit. And what Peter is saying is, today, the day of Pentecost, is that day. Peter is helping them interpret what was happening in the Old Testament and saying, this is what the Bible means. He was giving them the explanation and the application of what was written for centuries in God's word. He was clearly articulating what God had revealed and disclosed about himself and about the future in this passage. That's what a good preacher does. Open the Bible, explain it, illustrate it, and apply it. And so the Spirit has now come to embody common men and women. And not only that, there is a day coming, he refers to the day of the Lord, when judgment will come. So here's what Joel chapter 2 essentially says. The Messiah will come, the Spirit will come, and judgment will come. And Peter is saying two out of the three have already occurred. The Messiah has come, the Spirit has come, and now we're living in between, waiting for the day of the Lord when judgment has come. There's still hope for you to be saved. Thirdly, what we see is biblical preaching is gospel-saturated. Look at verse 22. Actually, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Question, are you saved? Are, are you familiar with the term saved? There's a lot of different terms in the Bible for what it means to be a child of God, to be born again, to be justified, to be regenerated. Saved is maybe not the best word. It's become kind of so common you know, that we've kind of lost the wonder of what it means to be saved. It's not a bad word. It's a great word to describe what has happened to those of us who once were under judgment of sin, but we've been saved from God's judgment through the blood of Jesus. And notice what a good preacher says. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. This is not just about what happened years ago. He, he pulls it out of ancient history and says, today, this day, if you will respond to the preaching of God's word, you can be saved from that coming judgment. Remember all those references to blood and vapor and smoke and fire and this gloomy day of judgment? That's what he's talking about being saved from. And so that ought to grip uh, our hearts and say, I need a savior from those things that are happening. Understand this, good preaching delivers good news, not good advice. Gospel preaching is not telling you you're a good person and you can do better. Good preaching says you're a bad person and you can be saved. That's good preaching. And that's essentially what is happening here in this passage. Gospel preaching calls for a response. It's not just about ancient history. It's not just about something that happened. It's not just about information. We have to respond. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to do something in response to what, ha what God has done. And then gospel preaching is Christ-saturated. Notice what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, women too, hear these words. Jesus, bam, right there. You want to know what the subject of the message is? 
It's Jesus. The subject of every good biblical sermon is Jesus. And Peter knew right where to start. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. And it's always going to be about Jesus. And if you're listening to somebody who's talking, giving you good advice in church, that is not good preaching. The Bible is all about Jesus. The main point of all of redemptive history, the point of the entire Bible is all about Jesus. Everything that was written up to the New Testament was about Jesus. Everything that was written after is about Jesus. And so we need to understand that all preaching, no matter what page of the Bible we say open to, what's on that page is about Jesus and how we respond to him. So he goes on, he says, men of Israel, hear, These words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Biblical preaching is about what God did. Do you see that? God with mighty works and wonders, the signs that God did. It's not about what we must do. It's about what God has done. And without unfolding these mighty works and wonders of God, the only motivation we have to change is self-advancement and self-righteousness. That's not the goal of good preaching. When you cease to wonder and worship in response to the mighty acts of God's, you cease to be transformed by the preaching of God's word. That's why some of you come, you take notes, you come in and out and you go and you never change. It's because you have ceased to wonder at the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did and continues to do. Verse 23 says, this Jesus, in case you forgot what the sermon was about, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I love that. God has a definite plan for all of history. Do you ever wonder what God's plan is for your life? Do you ever wonder if God has forgotten you? Do you ever wonder if God actually knows what's going on in your life? Then you have forgotten the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You say, but what's going on in my life right now is really cruddy. This could not be part of God's plan. Think about it. The worst possible thing happened to the worst, I'm sorry, the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person, Jesus, to accomplish the best possible good. And that was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He allowed suffering and pain into the life of Jesus to redeem all those who would believe in him. And if, if God allowed that to happen to his own son, you can be sure that some of the definite plans of your life is for you to suffer so that we can grow in dependence and understand how needy we are for this Savior. As a matter of fact, that's what he talks about. He begins to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He says, this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed, in case you were wondering if there was any boldness to Peter's preaching, you killed, you crucified him by the hands of lawless men, verse 24, but God raised him up. You missed your opportunity there. Do you want me to just give you another run at that? But God raised him up. He's alive today. 
you couldn't kill him by your seat. You could kill him, but you couldn't keep him dead. And so God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And if you want to know what God's plan is for your life, look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And that will help us understand that nothing happens outside of the sovereign, definite plan of God. Look at verse 25. He essentially says, now I want you to open your Bible to Psalm 16. Because he begins to quote Psalm 16. And he says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before him, before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Verse 26, therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades and let your Holy One see corruption. What does that sound like? Does that sound like a resurrection to you? That was written way back 700 years before Jesus ever showed up. And Peter is making the application. He's basically telling them that was not about David. That was about Jesus. The whole Old Testament was written about Jesus. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, now he begins to interpret it. He says, brothers, look up here, look up here. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him by, uh, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 16 is about the resurrection of Christ, Peter says. The entire Old Testament is about the lordship of Jesus Christ, his coming savior, a descendant of David whom God would raise from the dead and sit upon the throne of David forever. That's what P Peter is preaching. Verse 32, it says, this Jesus, in case you wondered what this sermon was about, this Jesus, God raised up. Oh, you missed your opportunity again. I'll, I'll give you another shot at that, all right? Are you picking up a theme here, okay? This Jesus, God raised up. Yeah. That's right. And of what we are uh, all witnesses, verse 33, therefore, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then Peter says, uh, open your Bible to Psalm 110. And he quotes Psalm 110, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom, in case you forgot who this message was about, this Jesus whom you crucified. Everything Peter has said is pointing to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised descendant of David to sit on his throne. Jesus is the true and better king of Israel. Jesus is the one who conquered death. Jesus is the one who received the Holy Spirit and then poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, making things that seem unbelievable now believable to those of us who have the Spirit. Jesus is the one that God has made both Lord and Christ. Biblical preaching is Christ-centered. 
Lastly, biblical preaching is application-oriented. How do you know whether someone is teaching or preaching? How do you know in the message when God turns it from something to learn to something to respond in worship? It's when the preacher uses the word you. In case you thought this was a message for somebody else, in case you're sitting there saying, I wish my wife would take notes on that part of the sermon. I, 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 Lord, I want to pray for my son right now that he would repent and give his life to Christ. And listen, the sermon is always about you. And that's what Peter says. Did you see the number of times he said, hey, you who crucified Jesus. Stop blaming your sin on everybody else. It was your sin that hung him on the cross. That's when preaching becomes powerful. Now that you know what God has done, what are you going to do about it? How will you respond? What are you going to do? You, hey you, who crucified Jesus. Until you let the weight of the reality that your sin nailed Jesus to that cross, you will remain apathetic toward the preaching of God's word. But if you will allow the spirit of God to break your heart over the fact that Jesus was nailed to that cross by you, you say, well, I wasn't there. Your sin was there. And it was because of your sin and my sin that Jesus hung on that cross. And when Jesus says, when Peter's preaching and he says you, he's also thinking of himself because 50 days earlier, Jesus says he hung on that cross. He made eye contact with Peter who was cowering in a garden. And Peter understood it was the weight of his sin that nailed him to that cross. Secondly, let's look at the components of biblical salvation. Speaking of you, look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Notice it didn't say their heart raced. It didn't say their heart was stirred. It says their heart was cut. Have you ever been cut? You bleed, it hurts, creates a wound. Like a good surgeon, a good preacher will take a scalpel and he will perform heart surgery, open heart surgery to cut out the cancer that's killing you. And it is not until the word of God makes its way from your head to your heart that you respond appropriately to the preaching of God's word. That's the problem. Some of us think that I'm supposed to respond with my head or that I'm supposed to respond with my hands. I've got to go do something. It is the heart that changes the head and it is the heart that changes what we do with our hands. When you realize that you killed Jesus. You'll stop minimizing the deadly effects of your sin on your relationship with God and your relationship with others. The cross shouts, hey you, your sin is deadly. 
When you realize that you killed Jesus, you will stop excusing your sin. The cross shouts, hey you, on the third row, up in the stadium seating, you, you're responsible for the death of the Son of God. Stop minimizing your sin. Stop blaming it on somebody else. Stop procrastinating your repentance. They were cut to the heart. And that's the appropriate response. Peter goes on and he says, the, the crowd responded to Peter. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, brothers, what shall we do? In response to what they had heard God had done, the only appropriate response of the heart that's been cut is to ask the question, what do we do now? What do we do? Let me ask you a question. If you were Peter or one of the apostles, how would you have answered the question? What would you have told these men to do? Would you have looked at these men and said, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life Do you understand that you do not make Jesus anything? Jesus is Lord. We read in verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ. You don't make Jesus anything. Jesus is Lord. What we do is we confess Jesus is Lord. The word confess means to agree with God. You agree with what God has already said about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. You say, yes, he is. He is Lord. Now, the problem is so many of us argue with God about the lordship of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, every sin I commit is an argument with God about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And every act of obedience is a confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. That's why in Romans chapter 10, very familiar verse, it says that we are to confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and, and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It's not about making Jesus Lord. It's about confessing Jesus is Lord. When I confess Jesus is Lord of my life, I'm confessing three things. I surrender to the control of Jesus. I submit to the authority of Jesus. And I sense the presence of Jesus because that's what lordship is. God has announced Jesus is in control. Jesus has all authority and Jesus is ever present. And our response to what God has said about Jesus is, absolutely, every day I acknowledge, I surrender, I am not in control. Jesus, you are in control. You're in control of my time. You're in control of my thought life. You're in control of my money. You're in control of my marriage. You're in control of my future. You are in complete control. That's what you do in response to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I submit to the authority of Jesus. I'm not gonna make up my own plan for my sexuality. I'm not gonna make up my own plan for my money. I'm not gonna make up my own plan for my relationships. I'm gonna to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. That's the Lordship of Jesus. And then I sense the presence of Jesus. That means that Jesus is not some distant reality that's sitting on a throne somewhere in heaven. He's right now in the room with me. When I think I'm alone, I'm in the presence of Jesus. And so the Lordship of Jesus acknowledges his right to own my time and own my life and everything about me. Question, 
Is Jesus Lord? You see, the problem is, some of us would have answered the question this way. You need to accept Jesus as your Savior. I hear a lot of people say, I want Jesus to be the Savior of my life. I've even heard people say, when I was six years old, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. But it wasn't until I was like 47 years old that I accepted him as my Lord. That doesn't work. You don't get to pick and choose the parts of Jesus you want and leave the other parts of him behind. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Christ means Savior. And so you don't take Jesus as Savior one day and submit to him as Lord later on. Listen, if you reject him as Lord, he will reject you as your Savior. You receive him, you accept him, and you submit to him as Lord and Savior. That's the reason some of you have said, you have no assurance of your salvation. Some of you would say, um, as those people said, what shall we do? Some of you would have said, you need to pray and ask Jesus into your heart. Have you ever said that? You ever said that? You're, sometimes we say that to our kids because we want it to make it simple. And listen, I'm sure that your motive is sincere, but that is not the best way to present the gospel, asking Jesus into your heart. That's never in the Bible. We know that Jesus does abide in our hearts and our lives. That's the doctrine of the union of Christ that we've talked about. I abide in Jesus. Jesus abides in me. It's true. But the point of salvation happens when I confess the lordship of Jesus in my life. And that brings great assurance that it's not about, some of you have asked Jesus into your life a thousand times. Have any assurance of your salvation? No, I'm gonna ask him one more time. Maybe it'll happen this time. It's because it's not a biblical prayer. Just responding and praying some hocus pocus formula, sinner's prayer type stuff. Listen, that's no indication. Some of you are living with false assurance of your salvation because when you were six years old, somebody said, just ask Jesus into your heart. And you're like, done, rubber stamped it, done, and you got some kind of fire insurance. Question is, have you surrendered to the control of Jesus? Have you submitted to the authority of Jesus? And are you living daily with the sense of the presence of Jesus? God has made him both Lord and Christ. It's all about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 38, look back at the Bible. And Peter said to them, Here, here's the way that Peter responded to their question. What shall we do? Verse 38, I'll give you four things to do. Number one, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of genuine salvation is not whether or not you've prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, been baptized, gone through confirmation. The evidence of genuine salvation is a lifetime of faith and repentance that continues and endures to the end. That is biblical salvation. Peter says, repent. It's an old-fashioned word. What does the word repent mean? There are are a lot of re-words in the Bible. Did you know that? Repent, return, What is repentance? Let's give it a definition. Repentance is a God-enabled change of heart that produces a change life. It's a change of heart that produces a change of direction in my life. Peter says repent. Repentance is a gift from God. 
it is impossible for a dead, hardened sinner to do anything in response to God. See, before I can turn, God actually has to give me the grace to do the very thing which he commands. It's interesting in the Bible, repentance is a gift from God and repentance is a command from God. And yet God grants what he commands when we repent. And so we turn, it's a pivot. Repentance is a pivot. It's like, anybody watch basketball? Like, can I show you what repentance looks like in basketball? It's right here, all right? See that? Great athletic skill happening up here while I'm preaching. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, thank you. Do you know what I just did? Did You have a pivot foot, right? And what you do when you pivot is you turn your back on the direction you were headed and you face the thing that you were headed away from previously. Repentance is a pivot. It's a 180 in your life. And it happens in a moment in time. It doesn't solve every problem, but what it does is it changes your direction. Do you know what repentance looks like in baseball? Pitcher's standing there with a baseball. His job is to throw the baseball as hard and as fast to get it past the the batter, right? But if the batter's a good batter, he takes the bat. And when the ball comes, he swings the bat. If the bat makes contact with the ball, what happens to the ball? It repents. It's a change of direction. The ball did not wake up one day and say, I think I want to go a different direction. There is another force that acts upon the ball and sends it in the opposite direction, which continues for a lifetime in the life of a genuine believer. Peter says, repent, because that's what brings change and the lordship of Jesus in our lives. Repentance flows from a deep sorrow over the direction that we've been headed. We've been headed away from God and towards self and towards sin, and it breaks our heart that we've broken the heart of God. Repentance is not just understanding that I've broken God's law, it's understanding I've broken God's heart. And it's understanding that I'm not just a lawbreaker. Deep down on the inside of me, there's something so notorious I'm a, I'm a law hater. The problem is the heart, not the behavior. The broken heart causes the awful behavior. It's not changing your behavior. It's a matter of the heart. Cut to the heart. That's what happens in salvation. Has that happened to you? Or have you just changed and modified some behavior? Is Jesus really Lord? So Peter says, repent. And then he says, be baptized. Now, a lot of people have been a little confused about this verse. It's like, it looks like, you know, baptism may be like a part of the process of salvation. That's not what it's teaching at all. It's not what the Bible teaches about baptism. He just, Peter connects the two, but it's so obvious that the person who repents, their first desire would be to be baptized because repentance is the personal confession that Jesus is Lord Baptism is the public confession that Jesus is Lord. It's like, I want the world to know it. I identify with the guy that was alive, but he was dead, he was buried, and he was raised again. What's baptism? It's like water burial. I'm alive, but I died. Old Trent, he's dead. What do you do with an old man that's dead? You bury him. Water baptism, right? So water burial and raised to new life. You get a brand new life, which is exactly what happened with Jesus. And so it's like a wedding ring. How many of you are married? Lift your hands. Lift up those wedding rings. Yeah, made you lift the wrong hand, didn't I? So there's a little preacher technique there to keep you awake in the sermon, right? So the wedding ring, if I take my wedding ring out off, am I, am, I now, am I now not married? No, if I put a ring on the ring finger, am I married? No, it's not the ring, 
but it's the indication to the world that I belong to somebody else. Stay away, right? And that's what baptism is. It's the public sign that I belong to somebody else. I'm in a covenant love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's baptism. And that's what he's talking about. I was visiting a man in our church who had COVID uh, this past week. Actually got into the hospital, visited him, prayed with him. He's doing better. I think he's, he's home now. But it's amazing. He's, he said, you know, Trent, the first thing I want to do when I get out of the hospital, I want you to baptize me. Like, he's been in our church for years. It's amazing when you are brought to the end of yourself, how tender you are to the things of God. You, you, have you been baptized on the right side of your salvation? Some of you, like, when I was eight days old, somebody told me I, they sprinkled some stuff on me. It's like, yeah, that's, that's not biblical baptism. We repent, notice the sequence, then we're baptized on the right side of our salvation. And then he says, this is the great news. This, you know what you get when, when that happens? You get the forgiveness of sins. What is that? Forgiveness means God cancels the penalty and then God pays the price. Two things had to happen in order for me to be forgiven of my sin. My penalty had to be paid. Jesus did that with his death on the cross. And my perfection had to be performed. Jesus did that with his life. And so when I receive Jesus, I'm confessing Jesus died my death and he lived my life and God will now treat me as if I lived and died like Jesus. Never to pay for any sin I've ever done. God will treat me, listen, as if I have never sinned. Anybody interested in that? Anybody ever sinned? Raise your hand if you've ever sinned. Here's, I'm, all right, all right. If the person next to you did not lift their hand, Love them anyway. <laughs> Do you understand? Everyone needs the forgiveness of sin. If God were to make you pay for one half of one sin, you would be in eternity forever separated from God. We all need forgiveness of sin. From the worst sinner to the best sinner. I don't even know how that works theologically, but like we're all really great at sin, right? We all need a great Savior. We all need the forgiveness of sin, and that's what Jesus has done. And here's the fourth thing, all right? So he says, repent, be baptized, receive the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what I think the number one reason people do not confess Jesus as Lord. Like the thing that's making you procrastinate. The thing that just kind of, you keep coming back to church is like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, I hope I could do better this week. Instead of just surrendering the control of your life and publicly going on record, I want to be baptized, I'll stand in front of the church, I'll confess Jesus. The re I, I think the number one reason is simply this. We have a fear that we can't live it out. And you don't want to be a hypocrite. I got good news for you. You can't live it out. And you are a hypocrite. I just removed the pressure, right? <laughs> but do you know what God has done? He's not only taken away your sin, he has given you the power through the Holy Spirit to live a life that you never could have lived yourself. 
That's why they were accused of being drunk. Do you know what, you're, you know what happens when you're drunk? It's like, yeah, I know. Um, you know what you do? You say things you never would have said if you weren't under the influence of the alcohol. You do things you never would have done if you weren't under the influence of the alcohol. How many of you like to share a testimony like, yeah, I had a bad night? Yeah, same thing is true of being under the influence of the Spirit. You say things you never would have done if the Spirit hadn't enabled you. You do things you never would have done if the Spirit hadn't empowered you. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God commands you to obey and then he gives you the power to do it. That's what you get when you are, you receive biblical salvation. I gotta tell you a story. All right, so um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I work out at a gym. And um, my pattern is the same. I pull out my keys. I got a little key fob on here. It gets me into the gym. I walk in there. I hang my, my keys on the hook. There's a hook in the gym. It's like uh, just a coat rack thing. It was hang, and people hang their keys up there and, and different things up there. So I work out. And then routine's the same every, every day. Grab my keys, grab my, my sweater, and I walk out of the gym. This happened a few weeks ago. And I uh, drove home. And then a couple of days later, I noticed there was a set of car keys hanging on our hooks at home where we hang the keys. And I'm like, I didn't recognize the keys. I'm like, it must have been, you know, one of Leah's friends. There's always, there's like 25 people that show up at our house on any given day. And I don't even know who these people are. There's friends of my kids, right? So I was like, well, somebody left their car keys here. But they just kept, they kept hanging there. So I, I, I eventually grabbed the keys and I walked in and Leah and Andrea were in the kitchen. I'm like, does anybody know whose car keys these are? Because I don't know, I don't recognize them. At that very moment, miraculously, my cell phone rang. I answered my phone and it was um, my trainer at the gym, Marla. She said, hey Trent, did you happen to grab a set of car keys a few days ago? Because um, my friend Mick, that I also train, is missing a set of car keys. I'm like, oh, I must have had mixed car keys. And then she told me, how miserable I had made Mick's life. <laughs> Do you remember a few weeks ago when it was like these incredible rainstorms that came? That was the day that I grabbed the keys. Mick drives an Audi, a convertible. Top was down. Not only can Mick not find his keys, he can't start his car, he can't put the roof up, and his car is just being flooded with this incredible rain. He has to call a tow truck. So he's standing out there, his tow truck drives the car to the dealership. It's gonna be $1,000 for him to get a new set of keys for the Audi. They drive the, the tow truck to his house and, and everybody's still wondering who's got the keys until they finally see there's this other set of keys that's been hanging at the gym for a few days. And so they finally scan the key fob and they're like, Trent Griffith pops up. Now, I have no idea how my car started with his keys. I think I had another set of my keys in, that got the car. But um, I, I called Mick, apologized like crazy. I, I offered to pay for the tow truck. Uh, Mick's a good tipper, so it was 175 bucks. And, um, and I, I just, I'm so sorry. Here's the point of my story. The key to salvation is repentance and faith. And some of you have been wondering why Christianity really hasn't been working too well for you. It just seems like a burden. It's because you haven't been using the right key. 
And so today, you can be saved. You can call upon the name of the Lord. You can repent of sin. You could be baptized. You could have uh, the forgiveness of sin come to your life, and you could receive the Holy Spirit. Here's the last thing. When that happens to a group of people, do you know what happens? The last thing is this, the components of a biblical church. Very familiar verses here. I just want to read them, and I don't have time to articulate them, but they're just a list here. This is just the sermon notes. You don't even have to take notes. Here's the sermon notes from Peter's message. Verse 42, what happened when all these people repented and received forgiveness? Here it was, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done among them, and all who believed were together. Wouldn't it be great to go to a church where everybody was just together? We were just aligned around the things that mattered most. That's what happened when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and there was genuine salvation because there was biblical preaching. It formed a biblical church and people devoted themselves to one another. Do you know why they devoted themselves to one another? Because they were the minority population. It's amazing when you're in the minority how you minimize the differences that you have because the people that oppose you have major differences with you. And so they were together. They broke bread together, which is symbolizing of communion, the Lord's table. We get down to verse 45 and it says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all and any who had need. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being, what's the word? Saved. saved. Are you saved? Do you want to be saved? Would you like to have assurance of your salvation? I want to invite you at the end of this service to find one of our pastors, find somebody that brought you to church, somebody that you know knows Jesus and say, I need to be saved. If you can't find anybody, you don't know anybody, you head right back out of here, you'll see a cross. Just go to the cross to be saved. It's biblical. Go to the cross. There'll be pastors there ready to receive you. Repent of sin. You can schedule your baptism. Some of you say, I'm saved, but I haven't been baptized on the right side of my salvation. Go to the cross. We'll get you baptized. We know that on the night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together and he gave them two symbols, the bread and the juice, because he never wanted them to forget the price that was paid so they could be saved. If you would take out one of those packets. and I want you to understand that it's so important that we not trivialize communion, even when we've got cellophane and we're dealing with the cup and everything. It's a holy moment. And it is only for people who are saved. Those people who have confessed Jesus as Lord. And so if you've not done that yet, just let this moment pass. Or give your heart and your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you can participate. Would you just take a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes, let the Spirit of God speak to you and remind you of the things that we've studied here this morning.
maybe the thing that you need to hear is this. You crucified Jesus Christ by your sin. Humble yourself. Confess any known sin in your heart. Repent. Turn. Receive the forgiveness of sin. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Scripture says that taking the cup, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The bread is the body that is broken for us. And then the cup, just simple juice, red, certainly a reminder, vivid reminder of the price of sin. In the same way, Jesus held the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we come daily surrendering to your Lordship. Thank you for the reminder that you've left for us in your eternal word. Thank you that it's written down that Luke got a copy of those sermon notes and preserved them forever so that we could be reminded of the mighty works that you did. You raised your son Jesus up to new life. And Father, we have access to you as we pray in the name of Jesus by your spirit. And God, I pray for those here that are unsure of their salvation, some that have that have never heard a biblical message that calls sinners to repentance. Lord, would you by your spirit do what I cannot do in this moment. Don't let us rush past. Don't let us escape the conviction of sin. Convince us that you're ready to receive all who will call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Thank you for that promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray.